The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. Don't be afraid. It's just KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Good morning. Welcome to Ask a Leader. This is your host, Claudia Shambaugh, speaking. We'll be back in a few moments with the two remarkable women, Dr. Laura Moscada. She's the Ronald W. Reagan Endowed Chair in Geriatrics and Director of the Geriatrics Program at UC Irvine Medical Center. She'll talk about elder abuse. Then, Bonnie Gilman is Executive Director of the Grandparent Autism Network, which promotes awareness and understanding of autism and hence the resources essential to community responsiveness. At the tail end, we'll hear from Dr. Minha Tron, who is heading up the New Blood Donor Center on UCI main campus. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest is Dr. Laura Moscade, Ronald W. Reagan Endowed Chair of the um, Geriatrics and Director of the Geriatrics Program at UC Irvine Medical Center. Last year, the U.S. Department of Justice has um, was has honored Dr. Laura Moscade um, and UCI's uh, Elder Abuse Forensic Center. AIDS, um, They've, I'm sorry, that honored her with the Award for Professional Innovation in Victim Services. This, the country's first elder abuse forensic center, aids victims of elder and dependent adult abuse and brings together legal, medical, social services, and law enforcement experts to be better, to better understand, identify, and treat such abuse, help prevent it, and determine more efficient ways to successfully prosecute offenders. The Orange County Elder Abuse Forensic Center is the model for three other centers in California and additional ones planned, and they may already be online by now since that was given, uh, planned in New York, Virginia, and Japan. Of the nearly 2 million older Americans are abused each year, according to the National Center on Elder Abuse, Orange County's law enforcement and social services agencies receive more than 8,000 reports annually. And since each incident reported, there's actually five that go underreported. We've got to do our math, folks. That's a lot of people right now in a a world of hurt. In addition to the Elder Abuse Forensic Center, UCI has collaborated with others on a range of projects to improve conditions for senior citizens, several of which are the first of their kind in the nation. Well done. The Orange County Vulnerable 
adult specialist team consists of geriatricians and neuropsychologists who provide in-home evaluation of seniors suspected of being abused. Also, there's the Center of Excellence on Elder Abuse and Neglect. It offers medical, forensic, and victim services to abused and neglected seniors, as well as training, research, and technical assistance to law enforcement and social services services agencies statewide. Dr. Moscade, what extraordinary endeavors. Welcome to Ask a Leader. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm glad you're here with us. The First of all, Dr. Moscade, let's talk about what you mean when you see examples of elder abuse, recognizing that there is a, there's a sliding scale of the minor to serious violations to an elder. Right. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right, Claudia. And I might if you don't mind, also start by telling people what a geriatrician is. Oh, that's good. We've talked about that uh, in a previous show. We celebrated a 100-year-old birthday of a year and a couple of months ago. We talked a little bit about that be- uh, distinction between gerontologists and geriatrics. But but let's, in talking about that, tell us uh, whether we've got um, a, a, an uh, uptick on those medical professionals being trained in geriatrics. I, I want to know for when I'm going to need mine. Right. <laughs> well, it's a great question. Uh, geriatricians are like the opposite end of the spectrum for a pediatrician. So we're the medical specialty that's especially trained to work with older adults. And actually, it's one of two medical specialties where there's actually a decreasing number of people going into the field. Um, and that's something we're really working hard to reverse. Um, so uh, unfortunately, we have this really bad intersection occurring, which is just at a time when older adults are the fastest growing segment of our population, the number of people going into that medical specialty is actually going down. Oh, not that's why do you think that is? It's a variety of reasons. Um, I think that, um, first of all, just societally, we don't have really great hopeful attitudes about aging, so it doesn't tend to necessarily be something that people think about choosing for a career. We're actually, when you study all the physician specialists and ask them about satisfaction rates, geriatricians um, are the second most satisfied uh, physicians in terms of our specialty choice of any other specialty. The first being a super specialized pediatric emergency room physicians. So those of us who choose it love it, and I would certainly include myself in that. The other thing is, unfortunately, from an economic perspective, it's the only specialty where you do an extra year or two of fellowship training and earn less money as a result. So that's got to reverse as well. Is that because of Medicare, Dr. Muscadet? Yeah, it's all, it really relates a lot to Medicare. And I'll say something politi- politically incorrect, but you know me, I don't mind doing that, which is I don't think it's so much that we need to make more. I think it's that other people need to make less. Um, so, but, but comparatively, when you're coming out of medical school with a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt, it's hard to choose a specialty where you're not going to, you know, be able to pay off that debt. But well, well, since we do, we understand that clinicians uh, choose a practice that springs from personal experience, perhaps uh, w- with more uh, attunement to the um, to an uh, an, to elder relatives uh, n- having their maybe maybe their geriatric needs not being met maybe there's hope for some shift in that focus in medicine by practice young practitioners i agree i think personal experience is really key to forming you know not only who we are but what we want to do with our lives um and i feel like i'm in a specialty that just provides so so much meaning for me personally 
and hopefully as well for my patients and my team. Um, one of the scary ideas, though, is that we're not tending to grow up altogether um, with, with multi-generations. And so I, I hope that we'll continue to find ways. In fact, we're working with a group of high school students right now um, forming a, a geriatric interest group or um, with high school students because we think that influence needs to start earlier. Where are you focusing those energies? You know, I, I apologize. I don't remember the name of the high school that we're currently working with, um, but it's a great group of kids, and and um, and you can see they just love working with the older adults who we've partnered them with. It's been a lot of fun. Well, maybe we can get the translational center, the um, the sciences uh, here at UCI, to uh, do some. Uh, you know, public outreach in a grant that they offer uh, to get some of the proximate high school population, that is University High School, Woodbridge, uh, and Irvine High, around here involved in uh, what you're working on. Perhaps perhaps those schools um, that you're working with are closer to the UCI Medical Center they in are, Orange. They are, yeah, Santa Ana area, right. But it's a, great, it's a great idea. And I think it also, bringing it back to elder abuse for a moment, is a really nice example of a partnership between our public university and the community. And that's a lot of our work in elder abuse has been this, I think, a very, very nice partnership um, with multiple different agencies in the community and University of California, Irvine. Um, and really shows how we can work together and make things happen to benefit the community that we all serve. Well, I want to say that nice just sounds too glib. It's, it's an essential partnership because, as uh, we know increasingly, the elder population is an increasingly isolated population, and they're further and further at risk at abuse. And we'll um, we'll, we'll talk about that now. Um, what um, what are some examples of elder abuse? And I, I want, I'll mention on the podcast uh, where people can get more information about those red flags. But can you talk, Dr. Mosqueda, to um, our listeners today about what those red flags are, so they can be more attuned to um, what is happening? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, it might might be of interest to people to know that in Orange County, our Adult Protective Services Agency gets um, more than 700 reports of elder abuse a month wow. in Orange County alone. So this is not a minor issue in, in our own backyard. Um, the kinds of elder abuse, there are a variety of categories. There's physical abuse of people getting kicked or hit or slapped or things thrown on them. There's... Um, financial abuse of people's money being used without their permission in a variety of ways. Um, there's, of course, sexual assault that occurs and, and domestic violence in late life. Um, there's also um, emotional abuse. Um, and I'm not just talking about people having a disagreement, but there can be really persistent and severe yelling that occurs at, at an older adult or threats that are made to them. Um, you know, if you don't sign over this check, I will put you in a nursing home, which is a combination oh of both financial and emotional abuse. Um, and the other kind of abuse that doesn't get discussed but which I think is huge is neglect. And those are people who really require help and are in positions where, they're, where they are supposed to be receiving help from a loved one or a paid caregiver, and that help is so inadequate that they sometimes die as a result. So these are people who end up with horrible pressure sores that aren't cared for, people who are lying in their urine or feces for extended periods of time. And I don't mean minutes or hours. I mean days and weeks. Oh, my word. And this is happening in our community. It might be happening next door. It doesn't matter how nice the house looks. It could be happening. 
Um, so these are some of the types of elder abuse um, that, that we're seeing. Red flags would include um, just not seeing anybody anymore. What happened to that person who used to live down the street? Maybe a friendly knock on the door wouldn't be a bad idea to see how people are doing. If people are observing really stressful situations of a caregiver who seems overwhelmed and just starts yelling at an older adult, that's a great time for us to offer help and perhaps prevent abuse or intervene at a very, very early stage. Um, if somebody um, seems to not be able to afford their medications anymore, yet uh, a relative has just purchased a new car with help from their funding, that can be a tip-off. So there's lots of things that we might notice. And I might also add that we can notice it in ourselves. One of the messages we're trying to communicate is that anybody can be a victim and anybody yes, can I'm be so an abuser. Yes. Um, and it's important that we recognize that within ourselves. Well, I want to talk about that. But first, um, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dora, Laura, uh, Dr. Laura Moscade, and she is the Ronald W. Reagan Endowed Chair in Geriatrics and Director of the Geriatrics Program at UC Irvine's Medical Center. We're talking about the culprits of elder abuse. Now, those could be relatives. They could be the caregivers. They could be complete strangers with some kind of a scheme. Who? Uh, uh, let's talk about... Um, how uh, insidious it is that there might be somebody abusing our elder. Right. Well, the and, and you're exactly right with the sort of different categories of people. It turns out the most common abuser is a family member. Really? Usually um, an adult child or a spouse. Um, far and away more common than a paid caregiver. Um, and we also have lots of issues with, with scammers who just seem to have radar for the more vulnerable older adults people who might be lonely or feeling especially vulnerable, um, people who might have a very early stage of something like Alzheimer's disease where their reasoning isn't quite what it used to be. They get the knock on the door and all of a sudden their driveway is getting redone for some outrageously expensive amount of money um, or a roof is getting repaired that didn't need it. Um, so it can, it can really happen to anybody through a variety of mechanisms. <clears throat> um, the other thing is that Many of the people who are doing the abusing, and, and abuse is such a pejorative term, and I understand that, aren't bad people who need to go to jail. Lots of times there are people who are just so frustrated and so overwhelmed with their responsibilities for caring for a spouse or a parent or a parent-in-law that they finally just lose it. They right. just lose it and hit somebody. And we know that they don't want to be doing that, and all we want to do is help them so that it never happens again. So that's what I, I like about um, the presentations I've seen, where you're talking about dealing uh, very pragmatically. Uh, we're not demon. You're not demonizing that uh, overwhelmed family member. You just want you want what's not right between the family member and the elder uh, patient. What's not going well for them and um, intervening. And it's a delicate um, exercise for you to approach, well, I mean, even though you've got this sort of multidisciplinary uh, task force uh, attending to each of these cases, it is a delicate matter to approach uh, uh, an incident, is it not? It is a delicate matter. And what I find is that when people, you know, the, the people who don't want to be abusing, uh, which is the vast majority of people, um, when you just approach them and they know that it, you approach them in a loving way and they know that you really care and you're trying to help everybody, that people are, are actually quite relieved to tell you what's going on and 
and to get help. And we have wonderful resources. I mean, the Alzheimer's Association here in Orange County is a wonderful resource for caregivers, hopefully before they're getting stressed, but even when they're getting stressed. Our Adult Protective Services Agency here in the county, which is so understaffed and underfunded, just a group of heroes as far as I'm concerned in terms of the social workers who are going out every day in the field and trying to help older adults who are getting abused. Contrary to, to some, some myths, you know, they're not going out and breaking up families and trying to put people in jail. They're really going out, these adult protective service workers, and trying to just help people so that they get out of the difficult situation that they're in. And I'm concerned about when you're talking about a, an agency like Adult Protective Services, whether um, they're like uh, many agencies on the margins here uh, with the public funding, if they're at risk of having to do a increasing a larger workload with decreasing funds. They're not at risk. It's already happened. Oh, okay. It's already yeah. happened. And, um, and this is really a penny-wise, pound-foolish approach because it's much more expensive to do something once somebody's been abused, neglected, et cetera. It's much more expensive for our system, if you just want to get kind of crass and pragmatic about it, um, than it is to catch something at an early stage and intervene at an early stage. It would make so much more sense to put funding into um, uh, our adult protective services. And I have to tell you, I go around the country and I see what's happening Orange County has one of the finest groups of APS workers in the country. Well, you get to take that bow, Dr. Moschetti. Pardon? You get to take that bow. No, no. <laughs> no. So it's, it's a mo- so you're able to take your models to some of those areas, and I, I, I imagine they're receptive to uh, what you're offering. And I don't know, I've, I was talking in the introduction about uh, your programs being a model for um, uh, New York, uh, Virginia, and uh, elsewhere. Now, is, has New York then uh, actually established something that's functioning at this point? Since yes, they have a wonderful center that's up and functioning. Um, there are also then centers in San Diego, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, and, um, and there are several other states talking about this. And, and actually, this model of elder abuse forensic centers has been written into into federal legislation called the Elder Justice Act, which although the act was passed, it has not been funded so that's something that needs to happen very clearly. But it's been written into federal legislation if and when it gets funding. Well, I would like for you to be able to make this plug, though, that it's um, it's an important upfront investment for savings down the road when uh, fiscal conservative debate uh, sort of uh, sidetracks this important work about funding uh, this uh, mandate. So true. And this is one of those... Um, um, situations, it's really good for everybody because clearly nobody wants an older adult to get abused or neglected. And if we put the funding in in the early stages up front, it really saves money down the line. So it makes sense, I think, no matter what your political leaning is. Absolutely. For those guests uh, who've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Laura Muscadet, and she is the chair in geriatrics and director of the geriatrics program at UCI talking about uh, elder abuse on Ask a Leader today on KUCI um, 88.9 FM and streaming live on KUCI.org. Well, um, now we uh, know that many of our listeners are saying, well, that's that population, but my demographic, I have my immediate concerns, but we ought to be thinking a little uh, 
ahead of what we're doing presently. And I, I wanted to um, just give you um, a, my, it's my debt of gratitude for your pointing the way to a, a wonderful uh, piece that Susan Jacobi's published. It's called Never Say Die, The Myth and Marketing of the New Old Age. No matter how youth-centric we are, we're all getting older. We will age. We will be old. And our bodies are going to tell us that in so many ways we can't imagine right now. So uh, what, um, with this terrific reading of things, what would you uh, want for the baby boomers and younger listeners to how to protect and prepare against those, um, those situations that loom over us? So the first thing that people need to do is stay as healthy as possible. And, and um, it's amusing to me that with all the millions and probably billions of dollars that have been spent on research, um, the best way to stay healthy as we age is all the things our moms probably taught us when we were six, which is eat right, exercise, be nice, stay involved, and stay active. And, and that health, aging in a very healthy way is a very good protection against being vulnerable to abuse and neglect. Further, there are things we can do on behalf of ourselves and our loved ones. Have your financial affairs in order. Make sure that, that um, if you have a loved one who's beginning to have memory problems, that, there are, that, there, that your name is also on, on the account so that nobody can come and steal huge amounts of money from them. You know, you can leave a small amount of money in a checking account so people still have the independence to spend, but not so that they can lose thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, you can, on behalf of a loved one, have a list of plumbers, roofers, whatever. If something goes wrong at the house, mom, here's a list of people that I've already vetted who would be safe to call. Because we all like to stay independent. And older adults don't want to call on their adult children for help. So, so just helping to think ahead and prevent some of the scams that occur are also very, very doable. And, and then asking people, I've actually changed the way I practice medicine as a result of my experiences in, really? in elder abuse. I, I ask every patient I see um, if they're afraid of anybody, if anybody's ever hit them, um, if anybody's using their money without their permission. Just a- asking the questions. If they're, it's just by simply asking the question, out comes the information. Right. Somebody, they were probably, they're waiting for that uh, <laughs> That rescue of sorts. Right. People are often relieved. And because I do a lot of work, I happen to particularly like working with people who have Alzheimer's and other dementias. So I have a lot of um, patients in my practice who have, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease or dementia, other type of dementia. And I will ask them, but I also ask their family members, boy, you know, this is a really difficult situation. Are you ever feeling like you're going to hit your mom or have you ever hit your mom? And I ask very directly. And, again, I think as long as people know that, that you care and you want to help, they'll give you an honest answer. Well, that they can, they can hear from your question that the, uh, the heft of your experience, that you know that's what goes on and that uh, we're, you're going to be no-nonsense about uh, making sure there isn't some kind of a situation going down like that in those incidences. Well, that's re- really, really remarkable. Well, I, I guess what we've talked around the edges about uh, what kinds of um, diseases uh, are uh, occurring where uh, we have a more um, at-risk uh, elder population. We talked a little bit about uh, Alzheimer's. It's generally, I guess, uh, 
cognitive impairment of mild to severe kinds, are there other diseases that or syndromes that can render uh, our elder uh, relatives, our, the, the elder patients out there, more vulnerable? Yeah, any, any of the particularly chronic illnesses that make you have to rely on other people more can make you more vulnerable. So, for example, if you have Parkinson's disease um, and you have a lot of trouble with your balance as a result, which some people do, you know, a, a shove, instead of just being annoying, can result in a fall in a, in a fractured hip. Um, or if you have um, an illness that makes you more dependent on somebody to help you with, say, bathing or grooming, then you also can become more vulnerable to various types of abuse. Mm-hmm. I think this is really, really helpful. And I, are you um, on any uh, local speaking circuit that listeners can be um, posting for scheduling up yeah. in the f- near We've, future? Yeah, we um, we have a whole training institute. We now have not only the Center of Excellence on Elder Abuse and Neglect, but we were recently named the National Center on Elder Abuse, um, which is the first time it's been awarded to one entity and outside of Washington, D.C. So we have a whole training institute. Um, and may I um, Please. give you the name of our website? Absolutely, and um, I have another couple. They'll all go on the podcast, too, later. Great, and so our website is www. Center on Elder Abuse, all dot, one word, center on elderabuse.org. Right. And we are pretty good about keeping up if we're giving any talks locally or nationally. Okay. Um, so people can check our website. Place to go to. And I, I will include that in the podcast summary so that people can check that out. So that is www.centeronelderabuse.org. I mean, sorry to speak over that. So, Correct. Um, that way, we could try, it's, uh, Dr. Moscada, I can uh, attest, is really a marvelously gifted uh, speaker, and um, we, it's, uh, it's a real treat and uh, an enlightening round uh, to the, be the beneficiary of those talks. So, well, I, I believe that's all the time that we have for this interview, and I really appreciate with all that you have going on, you set aside some time this morning to talk to us about elder abuse and how we, uh, a younger uh, demographic, can uh, look uh, into how we can get our ducks in a row so that um, we will be less, because this is not the thing, the sexy topic that we think uh, about mm-hmm. attending to right now, but it, it will mean everything when we're, our world sort of closed in on us and we're, uh, we're trapped with that kind of vulnerability. So, and, and I think it, as you said, uh, being nice now, it's, uh, and being mindful of the elders around us that are, are struggling with you know a declining cognitive capacities, just you know as, as as sort of gradual as that is, that we can be a bit mindful to uh, those elders around us and just give them a little more space if they've got that Parkinson shuffle, you know, to give them some room or make sure you uh, they don't shuffle into a fall. Just ways that that I suppose that would be one of their drugs of choice is a, a more uh, attuned public around them. You're here. Okay. Well, Dr. Moscada, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader, and I'm looking forward to the next talk you'll be giving. (laughs) Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. All the best. Take care. Bye. So we will um, put on all those websites uh, about the centers, uh, about... um, Elder Abuse, the Elder Forensic Center, and uh, the National Center, and the uh, the website for uh, future talks, and then uh, for now, we I want you to stay tuned so that we can talk um, 
in our next half with Bonnie Gilman, Executive Director of the Grandparent Autism Network, in advance of the conference that they'll be hosting next Saturday morning at Mariner's Church in Irvine. So we'll be right back, folks. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies of liberty Let our rejoicing rise high as we live Thank you for staying with us here on Ask a Leader. My next guest is Bonnie Gilman, Executive Director of the Grandparents Autism Network. It's a nonprofit. She's a nonprofit consultant who specializes in resource development for charities with more than 50, count them folks, 50 years of professional and volunteer experience for a myriad of health, educational, and social service organizations. Bonnie Gilman's founded the Grandparent Autism Network, also known as GAN. Uh, she founded in, in 2006 to inform grandparents about autism, the medical, educational, legal, and social issues that impact their families, and to raise awareness and support for autism, which my listeners know. We talk a, a bit about that from time to time with people who know so much about it. Uh, Bonnie Gilman develops and manages GAN's programs and projects and represents GAN in collaborative efforts with community and national organizations. I must hasten to add that Bonnie Gilman, as all those minding this organization, does this as a volunteer folks. Welcome, Bonnie Gilman, to Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. I'm pleased to be a guest. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, a great deal has been done to attend to early childhood autism. Your work focuses on older children with autism. This is a vital service that you're providing. Well, we realized recently that 90% of all the national and community resources for autism are spent on children ages 10 and under. And the obvious is that uh, people with autism are going to live a long life, and we need community supports now if we're going to be able to integrate them well into our communities in areas of employment and recreation and housing. And if we don't start now, it won't happen soon. Well, here, here. It's um, and it's and that too is a an upfront kind of an investment that can save private and uh, public funds a great deal of money down the line. Absolutely, and more importantly, increase the quality of life for people with autism and their families. And uh, when I say their families, I'm speaking generationally. Uh, at least three generations of a family feel the impact of having a family member with autism. We all uh, go to night worrying about who will care for our children, our grandchildren, what their lifestyles will be, and uh, we have a conference coming up with a speaker who is an expert in the area of aging with autism, and she's very unique 
It took us a long time to find her. She's from the University of Wisconsin, and her name is Dr. Marsha Malik-Seltzer. She's coming this Saturday to uh, present on the topic of aging with autism, and it's a topic that's a real uh, hot-button topic for not just our families, but for service providers, physicians. Uh, nobody really knows what kinds of needs and supports the community is going to need to have in place for people with autism. So we're hoping to get a roadmap to the future with this presentation. That's going to be really, uh, really, really helpful because as we were both talking about the emphasis, the funding, and the research has attended to pre-10 years of age. And now I think with our increasing awareness, we're understanding there's a much larger population of of aged uh, aged autistic uh, individuals whose whose needs are sliding scale from uh, you know the minimal to um, the major major kind of intervention and so it's uh, I, I'm uh, I'm not sure I'm going to get there but I'm going to try uh, myself to see what she has to say because it's now we're, we're talking on the other end the geriatric end earlier in this program and so now we're sort of moving mid to an adolescent to back up to an elder population where is now does the regional center in orange county do they uh have a, a sort of a um do they have a client base of uh, um elder at this point autistic individuals yes they do uh but in truth most autism wasn't diagnosed most people with autism weren't being diagnosed until the 1990s so there really hasn't been a very uh, conclusive study other than the study that Dr. Seltzer has, uh, has run to know what kinds of emerging needs are going to, uh, to be felt by the community. Our state of California is very concerned because without employment and without self, more self-sufficiency in the autism population, there's going to be uh, an overwhelming uh, uh, need to support these young people who are now being diagnosed. There, it's been described as a tsunami, if you will, of people who are now aged between 10 and 12 years old and uh, without having all those supports in place, we're going to be in a sorry state of trying to support those folks. And that doesn't even begin to account for the quality of life that they would have. Uh, in autism, more, uh, most specifically, people with Asperger's and higher functioning autism, uh, in fact, there are many savants, uh, they're very capable of being employed and of having a really good quality of life, but we need to have the opportunities there. And uh, the presentation that's going to be held Saturday will uh, review a 12-year study of more than 400 people who are on the autism spectrum from ages 10 to 54. Wow. Wow. And it's the biggest study ever that's been done in this country. 
And we really hope that Dr. Seltzer will have good advice for us as a community as to how we can pull together in the vital needed areas of support for our community. Well, without further ado, we need to mention that uh, the particulars about the uh, the conference. It's going to be held this Saturday, January 21st. It's your sixth annual research conference, uh, Aging with Autism. And this will be, uh, it's scheduled for noon, I'm sorry, 9 to noon on Saturday at the Mariner's Church Worship Center. That's at 5001 Newport Coast Drive in Irvine. And... People can, oh, my, my printer hasn't uh, done me any service here with that. Well, we'll do this. Um, the, uh, you can find more information about the conference and register at www.ganinfo.org uh, forward slash events. I can read that much now. Right. And, and, and uh, the subtopics of aging with autism, and this is where I believe families and service providers will really benefit is the topics of the family's role in achieving positive outcomes, what family members can do at home to ensure a a brighter future for their family members with autism, and also, more particularly, the successful transition to quality of life in adulthood. Transition is a huge topic of concern for families as kids age up into the high school years and need to be prepared for employment and for other things, everything from self-care to health issues and um, trying to uh, prepare people to live more independent lives. Right. I can imagine uh, navigating any kind of... uh, institution, what you know, for getting care, for getting edu- for getting training, just the whole myriad of things that you have to do to um, open a checking account. Oh, I mean, who knows? Exactly, all, and all grocery shopping and uh, personal health concern. When to brush your teeth and how to brush your teeth. I mean, in some cases, it, it's as simple as that, and in other cases, um, there are people who are so highly effective in their daily lives that they need very little support. But uh, uh, we'd like to have a whole spectrum of services available for our family members. And uh, grandparents are especially concerned because we don't have a lot of time to put those those, uh, supports in place. So we're passionate about wanting to work together and to pull together the various groups in the community that are all working toward the same ends, but maybe independently. Indeed. My guest, if you've just joined us, is Bonnie Gilman, Executive Director of Grandparent Autism Network, promoting awareness and understanding of autism and enhancing those essential resources that are available in the community, and I imagine advocating for more of that. And we're talking in advance of the 6th Annual Research Conference, uh, Aging with Autism, here in Irvine at the Mariners um, uh, congregation a Saturday morning, 9 to noon. Um, and so as I, I just want to mention again that more information can be had uh, by going to www.ganinfo.org or there's the, the number at the GAN uh, office in Tustin, area code 714-573-1500.
Um, that's Bonnie Gilman, Executive Director, my guest right now here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. So um, I'm uh, thinking it's a little bit tracking backward, but I really want to give you a chance to talk about a very special product that you have um, produced known as the Special Needs Acceptance Project, sponsored by GAN, and it's increasing awareness and peer support for all children with special needs. So I suppose if you're seeding that awareness with uh, uh, second to seventh graders about um, what it's like uh, to deal with autism and deal for them, then um, you're sowing those seeds for people who are going to be better advocates for the the aging uh, uh, autistic population. Yes, we are. Uh, just a, a quick comment about the, the conference that I, oh, I meant yes. to mention is that we co-sponsor the event with Children's Hospital, Chalk Children's, for OC Kids, which is a neurodevelopmental uh, center for uh, people with uh, neurodevelopmental disorders that's sponsored by Chalk and UCI. Uh, UCI Irvine School of Medicine is also a sponsor, and the Regional Center of Orange County all sponsor together this conference. Uh, at the same time, we work collaboratively with those same organizations and uh, do sponsor the Special Needs Acceptance Program, which invites teenage volunteers to be almost like ambassadors to bring a project into the community to help to prevent bullying. We have a book called the Special Needs Acceptance Book that GAN, my organization, donates to any classroom, uh, any school that, that uh, agrees to present the book to their student body, to youth groups throughout the community, and uh, libraries as well as churches and synagogues. The book talks about developmental disabilities uh, across the spectrum of, of 20 different ones, some that you can see, some that you can't uh, identify, like ADHD and asthma and, you know, uh, disabilities that, that uh, certainly young people would not be aware of. And it promotes making friends with people who have disabilities. What makes this book special is that it comes with a handbook for classrooms and for churches and synagogues, and uh, it makes it very simple and easy to integrate the lessons in the book uh, and reinforce it for children ages 5 through 12. We recruit teenage volunteers to bring that book into the community for us and to help us to prevent bullying, increase understanding and compassion for all people with disabilities. Of course, our long-range plan is that these young people <clears throat> pardon me, uh, will become peer advocates throughout their lifetime. And not only be supportive of people with disabilities, but help to integrate them into their communities, invite them into recreational activities, support them with opportunities and employment, and uh, overall become much more understanding about people with disabilities 
uh, and helpful. And uh, we give community service points to teenage volunteers throughout the year who bring the books into the community for us. And GAN will donate those books if we get a commitment from a group leader or a classroom, uh, well, classroom teachers, because we give one book to each school that commits to perpetuating the program with their student body. And it's it's a really terrific intervention, and I've, there's uh, so many different simple ways that you're trying to make it easy for people to to take that message and um, you know operationalize that. You've got the uh, the Tiffany the Tiffany acrostic line here about um, taking the T I F F A N Y time spent with the friend is always too short. If you can be with the friend for just ten minutes, take advantage of it every second. Friends make you laugh and wipe away a tear when you're hurt. Friends help you in tough situations. A, anyone can be my friend when I get to know them. N, never allow your friend to be hurt by others. And Y, yes, I want to be your friend too. I mean, so then that you're targeting, um, accommodating various uh, religious uh, centers to um, take up this message and the kinds of mindful uh, uh, kind, attention that they devote, uh, you know, each week with their congregations. I think it's a tremendous way to uh, get your message out and um, si- see this uh, awareness about um, what the sliding scale of need is for autistic individuals. I think it's just great. Well, and it's worked very effectively, especially in schools where they have typical students and a special ed uh, section of the uh, uh, of the campus. Uh, for example, in Tustin at one of our schools, uh, the special needs students and typical students became pen pals, and they worked together mm. collaboratively in yes. each other's classrooms on projects. And before they knew it, they were having lunch dates together. And by the end of the semester, there was no stigma attached to being a special needs student. The students were bringing the message home to their parents about their new friends, the typical kids, about their new friends in the special needs classrooms and how special and valued they were. So we know that the project works very effectively, and we are now asking our young teens to serve as peer leaders in this effort to prevent bullying and to promote lifetime success for all people with disabilities. Wow. On that note, I think we can wrap up uh, this interview. I want to remind everybody you can get more information at Bonnie Gilman's um, uh, organization, Grandparent for Autism Network, at www.ganinfo.org, the all-important conference that you can uh, get a great deal of opportunity from for now and for uh, for for all the way into the future uh, is at the Mariners Church Worship Center this Saturday, January 21st from 9 until noon. And um, Bonnie Gilman, I want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And as I want to remind listeners, this you do as a volunteer. You're the executive director, pro bono, giving all of this um, uh, uh, intellectual heft and capital to um, this organization with the with the yawning needs. We're just we can, I just can't imagine that it's not exponential in um, 
what uh, demands are going to be put uh, uh, on the, the public sector for um, uh, you know meeting these needs. So uh, thank you so much for coming on Ask a Leader today, and we'll um, uh, we'll stay tuned with. Uh, there'll be other engagements. I can imagine we can see on GANinfo.org uh, that will yeah, be happening. And, and Claudia, please um, remind your listeners that walk-in. Uh, People Good. are very welcome on Saturday. They don't have to register uh, or pre-register. They can just walk in. And GAN is an all-volunteer organization. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, but we are all volunteers. So I thank you for your interest and your support and look forward to hosting some of your listeners on Saturday. Absolutely. It's going to, I think it's going to be uh, very successful, and I think there's nothing like a longitudinal study that's going to get our attention. With it's, You said it was 12 years of study that Dr. Meltzer is putting uh, out. Uh-huh. Seltzer, I mean, so um, I'm really uh, glad you're doing this. Thank you again for your time today. Thank you. So we're going to be uh, back after a brief break. Uh, we're going to talk with Dr. Minha Tron, who is has opened recently a blood donation center on UCI. So um, we'll be back in just a moment. My next guest here, back on uh, all, all things considered, on all leaders considered, is Dr. Minha Tron, the associate medical director of the Transfusion Project, uh, the Transfusion Medical Service at UC Irvine Medical Center. Dr. Tron and his team have recently opened the Blood Donor Center on UCI's main campus where blood donors may go to provide blood components, that's the, the blood and the uh, plasma, uh, for UC Irvine Medical Center patients. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Tron. Thank you for having me. I'm glad. We know we've got you on our uh, medical uh, public service announcements, but we have you for a special time just at the close of the show before George Rosales comes on. Um, Please tell us about the logistics of blood donation for the new and lapsed donors like me. Oh, yes. We're very happy to have people come donate blood with us. It's a way for um, those of us who are healthy to um, support those of us who need blood and blood products in the hospital in a very special way. And uh, simply by coming down or clicking or emailing us, you can come by and have your eligibility assessed and potentially donate a unit of whole blood or platelets for patients in the hospital. Fine. And so um, what are the demographics so far of the new people filing in there at the donation center? Uh, well, you know, at our at our new donor center, obviously, it's the majority are students, and I think that's really wonderful. And I would like to see us being a part of uh, creating a lifelong donor uh, behavior among among donors in the community. And I think students are a wonderful way to start. You know, we're all young and energetic at that period in our life, and it's a really great time to come and become, start being a, a regular blood donor. <laughs> But yeah, so at the, the campus blood donor center, it's, it's uh, students are our principal population there. But we also are happy to have staff and faculty there as well. So. Okay, and um, the current need uh, is there a, a, 
a different uh, sort of a trend going on, the current need for donation? Uh, well, you know, it's uh, pretty much always Group O red cells. You know, we are pretty much always in need of Group O red cells. And then uh, we are working very hard to build our platelet donor program because platelets are uh, particularly challenging to keep in inventory. Uh, platelets have a relatively short half-life or short shelf life compared to red cells. How short is it? So, red, red, well, red cells, uh, once they're manufactured, we can keep them on the shelf for 42 days uh, with our um, with the use of additive solutions. But platelets only stay on the shelf for five days. But um, there's a there are a number of mandatory tests that must be done and completed before we can uh, transfer that platelet product into general inventory. That can eat up those time, five days. The of those tests and those tests are finished. Yes. The effective shelf life of the platelets become about three and a half days. Oh so wow! It's pretty hard to keep on the shelf sometimes. So, and and one of them that is it the platelets takes a little longer. How long does the platelet donation um, for the um, donor um, uh, take when they go to the center? How long do they need to allow for? Well, that's a good question. So um, to compare and contrast, for both platelet and, and whole blood donations, um, there, there's a, a, a registration process. You have to fill out a donor history questionnaire, and then there's a mini-fit physical. And th that portion of it takes the same amount of time, whether you're donating whole blood or platelets. But for whole blood, the needle in time is generally less than 15 minutes. It's very fast. Um, but for platelet donations, because we collect platelets using a self-separator instrument, the needle in time can be anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours, depending on um, factors such as the total blood volume, and the circulating platelet count, and other things. So okay. a, little bit, a little bit more of a time commitment. <laughs> Is there a, any kind of a contribution to, uh, to meet that burden for those donors? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we do our best to make our donors feel very comfortable and welcome. You know, during the time that donors donate platelets, um, they sit very comfortably in the chair, and uh, we have a little DVD player, and they can, you know, uh, watch a movie or... But, I mean... So, and then, you know... Go ahead. In terms of, though, um, so are... But are they paid anything for that long uh, commitment to have the needle time that you're talking about? Needle in time. Oh, no. Oh, actually, all... all all blood products in the U.S. come from non-remunerated donors, um, and which means that the FDA basically says if we pay a donor, then we have to label that blood product as coming from a paid donor. Okay. So we don't we don't pay donors. We have uh, you know small donor incentives to make donating blood and platelets fun, but really the the true the you know the the real beneficiary is actually the very ill patient in the hospital. And that's ultimately why, you know, we donate blood and platelets is to help that person who's in the hospital. And so you know, we, we may give out a few bottles to make things fun, but really the the ultimate uh, reward is knowing that you've helped somebody in a very special way. Absolutely. I understand that. I just want, uh, just so that people, uh, to anticipate their question. Well, we don't have more time now. I have my, uh, the, my next, uh, uh, my successor here um, is ready to start a show. And I thank you so much, Dr. Tron, for being on Ask a Leader. I wish you all success. And who knows, I can book, a, book me a little visit here coming up. So I want to encourage everybody right. to head down there. Quickly just give us the exact location on campus, and then we'll conclude the interview. Oh, we're located in room B106. Um, if you just walk into the main entrance for the courtyard study lounge, you'll see our double doors right there. And uh, you can call us at 949-824-2662 or email us at iBleedBlue at uci.edu.
I'm sorry, the, uh, with the cell phone connection, I want to make sure we have the correct number, 824 2662. 2662. Thank you. And we bleed blue. Um, thank you so much for um, being on the show. Happy New Year to you now and the Lunar New Year coming up in uh, less than a week. No, in yeah, in less than a week. So um, thanks again for being on. Take care. So uh, it's time now we give uh, my friend George Rosales, who's got his hat on. We're going to tip a hat to him as he comes on the show. We'll talk with you next week with more important contact. Thanks for joining me this morning, folks. J'ai un problème d'intégration, un don certain pour l'imperfection. Un jour sur deux, une grosse tête de con. Et je contrôle pas toujours mes pulsions. Je suis pas un robot multifonction. J'ai pas de raison de me jeter du pont. Bébé, je suis pas un héros de film d'action. Et on n'a pas forcément la même opinion. On n'a pas que des atomes crochus. J'étais plus puissant.